0: Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for the Word of God. We thank You that it's our, our link to understanding Your mind. I pray that You'd open up Your mind for us this morning. Thank You, God, that You've provided us with salvation. And in that salvation comes this wonderful relationship with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And we come to You this morning asking that the Holy Spirit would fill us, that He would uh, use Your Word to bring conviction to our hearts, and that there would be a just a, a longing even, God, in us to uh, to do right. Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And I so want that in my own life, and I so want that for my brothers and sisters in this local church. So please, God, create that hunger for us, even as we open Your Word. Lord, we know we're going to get our toes stepped on this morning, because uh, as imperfect people, whenever we handle the perfection of, and standard of God, we, uh, we find ourselves falling short. And so we ask even that Your grace would would be extended to us uh, even more. And uh, we believe that Your grace is sufficient, so we rely on You totally for this. In Jesus' name, Amen. We're discussing 1 Corinthians. We actually are into chapter 1. And uh, we're discussing the problem that Paul dealt with in chapters 1 through 4, which, which was the problem of division. That kind of division was probably first seen in Corinth. And the problem that existed in Corinth has swept through the 2,000 years of church history so that even today we struggle with this problem. It is the heart of God that there be oneness among the body of Christ. And it's hard enough to have oneness in our own local church setting, isn't it? But remember that the body of Christ is so much bigger than our little local fellowship. Relatively unimportant. No, that's not true. So important that Christ shed His blood and died for each one of us. But in the big scheme, we're not, we're not that huge. We're not the center. It's the Lord Jesus who's at the center, and it's our responsibility to reach out to everyone else that knows the Lord Jesus, who names the name of Christ. And rather than creating walls between one another, to break up those, those walls and, and see harmony produced. We suggested last time we were together that there's always going to be difference of opinion. It's not difference of opinion that Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 4. What he's talking about is that last point. How we handle our differences of opinion. God uses the differences of opinion to broaden us, to deepen us, to, to make us think to, to cause us to, uh, to open ourselves to the Holy Spirit and, and recognize more and more how dependent we are on Him, even in this area of creating unity among God's people. The problem occurs when what we differ about is handled in the flesh rather than in the Spirit. And I'm going to ask you to go to Romans 8, please, for some incredibly powerful verses. Painful verses, if you will. Let's take a look at these, and then we'll uh, try and make a relationship to what Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians, to what Paul was talking about to the church at Rome. Verse 5 of Romans 8, please follow along either in your own text or on the screen. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. Does that make sense? The mind is that controlling element. And where our mind is indicates the things that we value, the things that we treasure. And of course, the Scripture is very clear that where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. This is from the Lord Jesus Himself. So we really can't um, debate that point. Those who live according to the sinful nature, who have their mind set on what the nature's desire, are, are going to find that there are certain characteristics in their person. And we'll pull those out here as we go through. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mind set on what the Spirit desires. Let's take a look. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. There's four, at least four very powerful statements. In here, I want you to pick them out as far as what that sinful mind is all about and how we respond to it. Try and get them in order. Can you find them? First statement about the sinful mind. I don't know if there's any clues up here. What is it? The sinful mind is death. Can we get that before us? Can we buy into what the Holy Word of God is saying this morning? The mindset that is from our sinful nature is death. There's a way that seems right to a man, says the Proverbs. But the end is what? The end is death. That's what we're seeing here. That's what Paul is relating to us here. If it's the sinful nature that we submit to, it's death. Next point, as far as the sinful nature is concerned, it's hostile to God. Not just it's it's ambivalent or it's a, a kind of mushy mushy as far as God is concerned, it is hostile. It is hostile. Janelle and Scott, would you show us a little hostility here for just a second? There you go. All right. (laughs) We know what hostility is. We understand that. And what we do when we walk according to the flesh, when we walk in that sinful nature, is hostility toward God. It's grabbing God by the throat. Uh, What a stupid thing to say. But that's the idea. It's shaking our fist in His face. It's spitting on Him. It's pulling His beard. Where did that ever happen? It's hostility, people, and let's understand that. We cannot go here. We cannot live here. Next point. It's hostile to God. Same verse. Next point. It does not submit to God's law. In fact, it can't submit to God's law. Isn't that what that says? This is going to come again when we come into um, 1 into Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to see this same concept. And so I want you to understand that there's a deep relationship here. Even though we are talking about 1 Corinthians, studying Romans is extremely helpful because it gives us that understanding of what it's all about. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. And then finally, verse 8. We cannot, God. we cannot please God. I hope, I hope that that penetrates deep into my soul. I need to understand this. Now the question is going to be, is it possible... That people who have been redeemed, that is that the blood of Jesus has paid this enormous price for their sins, can people who have received Christ as Savior, who then, we understand, receive the gift of God's Holy Spirit, can those people possibly be subject to these things? doesn't seem congruous at all. It doesn't seem like it's possible. Let's ask. Let's find out. We're going to move ahead. Verse 9. You, however, are not controlled by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. Now, here's the issue if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Someone explain that to me. What is that saying? What does it mean if you don't have the Spirit of Christ? You're not born again. Your sins have not been paid for. And the implications are huge. You're not forgiven. You're hopelessly lost. You're headed for, for the depths of a dark, lost eternity. And the only future you have is hell. So He's not talking to us at all, is He? He's talking to people whose lives are dominated by their flesh. And the question again, is there any discussion then? Is there any need for us, as those who are believers in Jesus, is there any need for us to even go here? Well, let's keep reading. If Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who lives in you. Now, sounds pretty good. Sounds like we're, we're above this, right? We're okay? Verse 12, however. Ooh, what happens? Nothing. Oh, there we go. Okay. He says... Therefore, who? Therefore, brothers, meaning those of you in the family, those of you who are children of the living God, we have an obligation. But it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. What? Yeah, there's this horrible problem that we have. When Christ saved us, He gave us a new nature. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, if you're in Christ, you've become a new creation. That's fantastic. The struggle, however, is until we are glorified, that is, until we are transformed into the very likeness of Jesus, you and I are going to struggle with the flesh. And this is by. This is God's design, so I'm not going to argue it. It seems like I'd have done it different, but (laughs) I'm not in control. And neither are you. God has allowed this, that we still have a sinful nature. Didn't completely remove it from us. And so there's a struggle that we have regularly. We can, it seems, choose to live by our sinful nature. And you saw those things. What was it? Death, non-submission, hostility. We can choose to live that way. But power beyond power, grace beyond grace, God has said you don't have to live that way. You're not stuck there. That's the way it used to be before you had God's Holy Spirit. Now, if, the Spirit, if by the Spirit you put to deeds, verse 13, the... Put to death the misdeeds of the body; you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, sons, daughters, children. Don't get stuck on the, on the, uh, uh, what's the word? You know what I mean? Okay. If you live according to the sinful nature, that's death, people. That's hostility. That's lack of submission. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Now let's understand this. All through the New Testament, there are conditional phrases that talk about the choices we make. Alright? If we confess our sins, what happens? Faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And you can look for if, 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 if all through the New Testament. I am saved by God's grace, alright? If I have God's Holy Spirit, if I've trusted Christ as my Savior, I'm saved by His grace. But there is a dimension, and this is hard for me to understand. It's probably even harder to explain. And if I can't understand it and explain it, how am I supposed to help you? But anyway, work on this. That we, through the Holy Spirit... Have the choice to walk in the power of the Spirit or to walk in that old nature. Has anyone here experienced that bit of a struggle in their lives? A couple of you? Okay, all right, good. Yeah. We understand this, but here's the thrilling thing. Are you ready? We have God's Holy Spirit. I feel like Louis Giglio. Remember that video? Okay, that did nothing. Let me. No. <laughs> we have God's Holy Spirit. God has put within Him, within us Himself. And if my choices and my reliance is on God's Holy Spirit, then this life that the New Testament outlines for me is mine. It's available. I can enjoy it and prosper in it. But you keep hearing me say the word choice, right? Choice, choice, choice. How many of you wore brown socks today? Please? Got a couple of brown socks? I'm I'm tan. Okay. Anybody have black socks today? On what basis did you get those black socks, sir? Huh? Did you reach in the bag? Picked them up! He made a choice to wear those black socks. And it wasn't something that he went into, oh man, let's see, Lord, lead me as I choose these. No. He he picked black socks. And when I'm in the Word of God, when I'm in fellowship with the people of God, when my mindset has to do with the things of God, the choices aren't that hard. But when I drift off and let the world start to impact me, and I know you know what I'm talking about, that's when the choices get tougher. Alright? Let's, let's not get caught here. Lev, you're getting off on the tangent, which you are so prone to do. We need then to live in the Spirit, to walk by the Spirit. And it's a choice we make. I choose to read the Word of God. I choose to beg God in prayer to underst- to, for understanding and wisdom. I I make a choice to be in fellowship with God's people. I gather when God's people gather. I call God's people and talk to them throughout the week. Because I have so much, not me, because I work at a mass Bible college where everything's holy, but I have so much influence from the world that I desperately need the input from the Word and from prayer and from my brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the provision God has made for us to keep our minds headed in the right direction. All right, too much talk. Let's go. We talked about Lot. And I think we hit these points last time. Okay. The last point is the one I want to make. Even those who said, I am of Christ, had an attitude. that was inappropriate according to what Paul is saying. And so all parties share in the wrongness of the situation. Then in verse 13, Paul is going to ask three very important questions. Is Christ divided? Answer? No. Was Paul crucified for you? No. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? No. So why is Paul the rallying point? Why are you following Paul? Be careful here. This gets sticky. All right, What are the implications? Paul, I think, first off, is condemning an attitude that leads to division. And you see the little word in parentheses. Can anybody help me support this view why would I say it's pride that's an attitude that leads to division? Any suggestions from anybody? Why pride? And maybe you don't agree with me. So that's fine. Go ahead, Joyce. How many of you are married? Do you understand that concept? Uh, Thank you, life. All right. Betty and I struggle with this all the time. Of course I'm right. And she says, oh, honey. And it's pride that says to me, I am right. That causes division. What else might pride do that would cause division? Somebody else have another thought? Yes. Pride requires me if that's you, pride <laughs> requires me to step on you so that I look better. Anything I can do. Yeah, you should see what so and so's thinking or doing. You know? This is I'm sorry, folks. Oh <sighs> all right. Pride. Anybody else? I don't want to to cut anybody off. There's probably 55,000 things why pride fits into this issue as far as division is concerned. And I'm begging you to think this one through. I'm begging you to, to say, God, please help me understand this issue of pride. It is permeating, it gets in everything I do even when I do something humble, which doesn't happen often, but even when I do, I go, oh, was that ever humble? <laughs> it's everywhere, people, and we've got to watch it. Because what I believe is true is that it's pride, and Paul is telling us this in, in, these, ver- in these chapters, that, that pride is that underlying attitude. There's a There's a practice of I'm going, to, I'm going to gather people around me that think just the way I think. And I'm going to stick my arm out and stiff arm anybody else that has a little difference of opinion. And it's my pride that causes me to do that. Again, we're going to say, if there are issues that are of a doctrinal nature or of a moral nature, and we have a significant understanding about the differences there, the Bible is clear. We do need to separate ourselves. But folks where we possibly can we need to understand that this business of denominationalism of division is not what god has for his body when we get to heaven there is not going to be a brethren section you know i uh, seriously and this is sad but i used to think as a kid that that my form of practice of church practice was superior to everybody else's. And I would communicate that to people. I communicated it to my little girlfriend, who was what, Betty? Ah! She said it in here! Yeah. And I would, I, I would give her this superior attitude about why the Plymouth Brethren were so much superior to the Baptists. And guess what? I found out it, is, it just ain't so. This business is something that we have to watch very carefully because it's very insidious. It's very, very powerful. And we have to work on it. Paul, in all of his thinking here, confirms for us that the New Testament church embraces all who are truly believers in the Lord Jesus. Have you ever gone to a a local church expecting fellowship and been rejected? Has anyone ever come to our local fellowship expecting to be accepted and experienced distance or rejection? Shame on us. Shame on us. Let's be careful. This is a huge issue and we want to blast it apart. Paul says in verse 17 and 18 of 1 Corinthians, God, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the Gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Here it is. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And Paul doesn't want anything. This word, making the cross void, means to vaporize it. To have it go up in smoke. Paul says, no, 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 no. That's at the heart and soul and foundation of what we are, of of what has happened in our lives. What Christ has done for us. And guess what? If Christ saved Aaron Huggins through the blood shed on the cross, I must have fellowship with Him because that's what saved me. That's the only thing that saved me. Am I, here? Am I making a point? You're saying, "Lev, you not only made it, move on, buddy. Okay. Paul is going to argue in the next several verses, verses 19 through 31, he's going to argue that this business of... Let me go back. Uh, 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 this, this business of... Uh, pride and using cleverness in speech. Do you see the, uh, the the human reasoning aspect in there? Okay, he's going to argue in these verses that there is absolutely no part in salvation. So if you have your text, you can follow along. It is written, "I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever. I will set aside." Who's speaking? Holy God is saying, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. That's a quote from Isaiah twenty-nine, fourteen. If you want to jot that down, it might be helpful. Also, Proverbs 14, 12. And I've already quoted that. There's a way which seems right to a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Paul takes the... Old Testament Scriptures and shows in this argument that God has already declared this to be so in His Word. So He uses the Scripture in His argument. Verse 21. Oops. The declarative argument. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to those who believe. For indeed, I'm sorry, let me stop there. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to say those who believe. A foolish, weak, seemingly invalid source for our salvation. And that source is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you weren't here, but last week we watched a video by Louis Giglio. By the way, how many of you have returned the, the uh, copies that I loaned you? Shame on you. Right, I have another copy if anyone's interested, and when um, our delinquents get the other ones back to me, we'll share them again. But a great, a great uh, message, worth seeing again and again and again. In it, he suggested... The Colossians teaches that it's the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ that that holds all things together. And the blood shed on that cross was the purchase for our sins. Our redemption was made through the blood of Christ. And Paul says, that is the wisdom of God. Even the disciples thought, oh, God, you blew it. They stood around that cross and they watched their Savior die. They watched His blood flow from His body and they thought, it's over. Everything we worked for these last three years hopelessly destroyed in these hours. What they weren't banking on was what Holy God would do three days later when Christ exploded from the grave in incredible power, resurrection power, and proved that the cross, rather than being a defeat, rather than being foolishness, was absolutely the most powerful thing that's ever happened. And we need to hold on to that cross and make that and I don't mean the cross itself. I mean the, the, the theory, the idea, the, the philosophy behind the cross. We need to hold on to those things. But God declared that it was going to be so. Next is what, a little confusing, but we'll call it a spiritual argument. Spiritual argument. Verses 20 through 25. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block. To the Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are called, who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because, get this, now this is so neat, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. That, That verse has thrown me for a long time. And so I've had to explain it to myself this way. If God were foolish at all, and He's not, but if God had a foolish moment, it would be so far superior to the wisest moment that we collectively have ever had that it wouldn't even be a comparison. If Christ, if God were, were, were even... What, what's the next phrase? Even had an, an ounce of weakness... And he doesn't. But if he did have an ounce of weakness, it would be so much stronger than anything that all the forces of man could put together. And so we need to understand this, that there is a work here by the Spirit of God that is so awesome when a person comes to faith in Christ, it is a transforming, powerful, wonderful thing that comes into our lives and we are radically transformed. It would be neat, but not wise, because God chose it this way. It would be neat if the moment we were saved, we became perfect. There are so many times when I think, oh, if I could just get over this stuff, you know? That wasn't God's plan. And I say, well, maybe that was a little bit foolish. Maybe he... (gasps) If it were, it's still smarter than anything I ever thought. Get the point? There's no room for our reasoning in this process, in this plan. Just get over it, is what he's saying. And then verses 26 through 31, and this is hard. He says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, Praise the Lord, verse 27. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen. The thing, God has chosen the things that are not so that He may nullify. Get it? He may nullify the things that are. And verse 29. That no man may boast before God. But by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul takes that theme and weaves it many, many other places in his writings. That there's no room, folks, for you to take any credit or think that you had anything to do at all with your salvation because it was a work of Christ from start to finish so that no one may boast before God. Why is it then that human wisdom has no part in salvation? Well, we've we've made that point, I hope, well enough. The tendency of the human heart is to take credit. And God says, no, no. That's not what this is all about. He says there is a wisdom that's available to you. You know what kind of wisdom that is? What's that? Christ's wisdom. Wisdom from above. Wisdom from God. It's a wisdom, whoops, that is from God's Holy Spirit. And it's available to every child of God. Are you hearing this, people? This is is freeing. This is revolutionary. This is the kind of stuff that that transforms our lives and our thinking. I don't have to rely on my own wisdom. I have a wisdom from above. A wisdom from God. What does James say about that wisdom? Anybody? Anybody studied James lately? Ask God, and He'll give you the wisdom. And he, He's, you know, when God gives that wisdom, He'll say, okay, Riley, you asked today. There you go. Right? What? Yeah. He dumps the whole thing on us. Don't doubt it. Don't go back to your old ways. Don't rely on your own wisdom. When God gives you wisdom, be sure that you act on it. Be sure you rely on it. How do I know? How do I know that I'm acting on God's wisdom? Guess what? He's given us a textbook regarding the wisdom of God. And the more I understand this book and make application of this book to my life, the more I can say with confidence when I ask God for wisdom that I will be acting out in wisdom the things that God wants and the things that God is telling me and the things that are wisdom from God. Discuss that for a moment. We've got three minutes left here. Your reaction to that? This is probably the most important part of the whole discussion this morning. Fantastic. Verse, verse thirty-one. I believe it is thirty-one. Yes. No, yeah, 30. verse thirty. Verse thirty. Other thoughts. It's something that the human mind would never conceive. At at its best, the human mind is still so far from this fabulous wisdom that God has that it's, it's not even a comparison. You can't even go there. Can you hear what Naomi is saying? Everybody? Say it again because this is worth saying. What is that called, people? And it starts with a big P. Yeah. You see how insidious that stuff is? You see where it goes everywhere? Well, I'm not going to trust God. I'm way smarter than God. No, we just read that at your very best, you don't even touch God's foolishness. Got to let this grip our souls, people. How is that going to impact your work ethic? How, Jason? Our Fantastic. Because no matter what, our real boss is not a jerk. Everybody's boss is a jerk. Right, Benji? Benji? Benji works for Jason back there. (laughs) Our real boss is the Lord Jesus. How will that impact your parenting? Where's our parents? How's this going to impact our parenting? Got any ideas, suggestions? Thank you, Heidi. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Benji, what what was your mother's favorite line as you were growing up? Push me over the brink. Oh, I love you. Moms, when you get to the brink, when you get to the brink, go ahead. Just let them push you over it instead of relying on your own strength. Rely on the wisdom that comes from above. And as the Word of God has filled your heart and your mind, you have the capacity, the power that raised Jesus from the dead to deal with your kids properly. Husbands, wives, I'm not even going to go there, but you understand what we're saying here. You can't do it in your own strength. All you can do is mess up your marriage. It's the way of death. But if I do it in the power of the Holy Spirit, choosing those black socks, choosing to allow God's wisdom to dominate my life. My marriage can sing. My marriage can, what does Colossians say? Shine like the stars, Philippians, shine like the stars in the heavens. So that when people drive down your street, they go past your house and there's this incredible glow. Huh? Is that asking too much? That's what God wants from us. Let's pray. Father, if that's what you want and that's what you provided, then, then pour it out on us and let us have it, I pray.